Well, thank you, Jake, very much. Well, things have certainly changed since Thursday, since I gave my sermon notes, sermon introduction, and sermon points to my colleague, Emily, so that the bulletin could go to print on Thursday. I feared it would be this way. I told her when I gave the notes to her, well, you've got the notes, but they may change significantly by Sunday, and they certainly have. You can safely discard everything you have in your order of worship this morning pertaining to my sermon. Everything has changed with the exception of the text, of course. If I've been working on the sermon somewhat during the week, often by Thursday morning, I can kind of eyeball it, put a general introduction together and the points. Maybe there's further refinement later on, but not today. It's radically revised. So what I want us to see is how Paul is enthralled in this passage by God's vision for the church, God's purpose for the church. You will catch that as we read this passage He wants us to be enthralled by God's purpose for the church as well, and that's why if you're a note taker, the title of the sermon this morning is Enthralled by God's Church. And something else you'll see as we read this very tightly reasoned portion of Scripture is how central, absolutely central, the church is to what God is accomplishing in history in this world. It's basic, it is central to what God is doing. And so if you're a note taker, like somebody in my family is, she's our student, we say, here are three sermon points. They'll be clear as we work our way through the passage, but if you want them ahead of time and you can anticipate them, here they are. The church is central to human history. Second, the church is central to the gospel. And third, this church is central to Christian living. You'll get those as we work our way through the passage. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul begins, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice how he stops in mid-sentence at that point. He'll begin his thought once again in verse 14, but he digresses at this point because he's enthralled with God's vision of the church and he wants us to be as well. And so Paul says, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known To the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light 
everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose word is a gift of wisdom and insight, we ask that you would give us now a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of your word and in the knowledge of Christ our Savior. Almighty Father, we humbly ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope we have in you as our majestic and merciful God. Reveal yourself to us because we can know you only if you give yourself to us to be known. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Amish and Mennonite communities that first settled Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where my family and I lived for several years, still exert a formative influence on that area. These very self-sufficient people are not only capable farmers, but they are skilled in everything that pertains to domestic farm life. They are known for their agricultural produce and for their dairy products. They are known for their wood furniture. Uh, they are known for their hearty food, but they are also known for their remarkable quilts. While these hand-stitched quilts were originally created for warmth or perhaps for family gifts or family dowries, they have evolved to a point now where they are regarded by many people worldwide as exquisite pieces of art. And they are art. I mean, you look at an Amish and a Mennonite quilt and you marvel how the Creator has taken what seem like countless pieces of fabric, fabric of different sizes, different shapes, different colors, and they have skillfully woven them into a breathtakingly beautiful pattern. The wisdom, the creative skill involved is enthralling. And that, is, in a sense, is a picture of the church Paul enthralls us with here. The church, he says in verse 10, is the manifold Wisdom of God is a wonderful picture that Paul gives us there. This word manifold literally means many colored. Many colored. Uh, this particular word was used to describe flowers. It was used for embroidered cloth. 
This word was used for woven carpets. The church as a worldwide, multiracial, and multicultural community in union with Christ, its creator, is like a beautifully woven quilt that reflects the many-colored skill and wisdom and power and grace of God even to the unseen powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. Paul is so enthralled by this vision of God's church that he digresses momentarily from the point that he had been making to explain this to us further so that we might be enthralled with the church as well. Paul's reasoning is tight. It's a bit hard to follow at times, but his basic point is clear enough. The church is absolutely, fundamentally central to God's plan for human history. Now, how this could be was a mystery hidden for ages, Paul says. But God's plan has now been fully revealed through his holy apostles and prophets And what Paul says here is why John Calvin and other theologians called the church the mother of believers. And that thinking is helpful to us today. Uh, Some people conceive of the Christian faith as involving a personal relationship with God that almost has nothing to do with the church. And then there are others who make a grudging concession to the necessity of the church, but at the same time they give up all hope for any of of it as an organized institution. And that's understandable because it's easy to be critical of the church, it's easy to be unhappy with the church. Every church is always a work of God under construction. It is always in need of ongoing reform and ongoing renewal. But what Paul is impressing on us is this. Let us never despise the church of God. God loves his church. God sent his son into this world to die for his church. So we can safely say that God has not abandoned his troubled church, no matter how unhappy we may be with it at times. The church has a central place in God's plan for humanity. Paul is enthralled by that vision. He is willing to die for it as a minister of the gospel. And what three truths does he share here that encourage us to be enthralled with the church as well? Truth number one, the church is central to human history. In verse 11, Paul says the church exists according to, quote, the eternal purpose of God. In verse 9, he says this plan was, quote, hidden for ages in God. In verse 5, he says that this plan was made known not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. How has God's plan been revealed? It has been revealed in the saving work of Jesus Christ. But here I think is the big question for us. What is this eternal plan of God now revealed in the saving work of Christ that is so central to human history? What is that? It's this. God's creation of one 
new humanity that is reconciled to him in Jesus Christ. That is the mystery hidden for ages, now revealed in Jesus Christ. And as verse 12 says, all of God's people, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of status, the high as well as the low, have this bold and equal access to his throne through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is no respecter of people as we are prone to be. Put another way, there are no black sheep in the family of God. There are only sons and daughters in Christ who are deeply cherished and delighted in by their heavenly Father. That good news is central to human history. It explains why God created humanity in the first place. It explains why he sent Jesus Christ to redeem a world of sinners. It was so that people of every tribe and tongue and nation may know and love and enjoy God. Now, understanding this good news against the backdrop of everything that Paul has written in this letter up until this point helps us be enthralled with God's purpose for his church. And there are two wonders in particular this morning that Paul refers to earlier that lift our hearts up with joy and hope. And the first is this, we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. Back in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, Paul said, quote, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There is an awful lot in that statement, but one of the wonders Paul is referring to is that all of God's people, the high and the low, the haves and the have-nots, will put on glory... We will all be changed. You know, writing about the weight of glory that awaits us, C.S. Lewis said that while we cannot give an exact description of the believer's future, the heavenly beings that we see in Scripture indicate, quote, that the most dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to here in this life may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be, you would be greatly tempted to worship. Now think of that. I mean, in the tomorrow that awaits us because of the death of Christ to reconcile us to God, because of the resurrection of Christ to give us new life, and because of the exaltation of Christ in heaven to crown us with glory, the person nearest you at this moment may be so transformed that were you able to see them in that state now, you would be strongly tempted to fall on your knees in worship. That truth has great implications for the church's ministry today. How hard and difficult it can be to minister to particular individuals because of the challenges in their lives. And if all we see in people are problems because of our fallen nature, then we will soon tire of them and tire of the effort it takes to befriend them. But my friends, if we see the glory that they may put on if they belong to Christ, 
then we will see it is worth our while to invest our lives in them. Something else I think that Paul emphasizes, we shall all bear his image. We shall all bear his image. Again, Paul said back in chapter 1 that all of God's people, because of their union with Christ, are saints, literally holy ones. He also said that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. What it all comes down to is we who are in Christ will bear his image in glory. Oh, that truth enthralls the, the child of God who is struggling with the weaknesses of the flesh now. All of us struggle with the weaknesses of the flesh on some level. Even the apostle Paul could cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the day is coming when God will look upon each child of his and he will be pleased with what he has made of us because he will have made us like his son. The Bible doesn't say that we will play harps eternally in heaven, but it does say that we shall gloriously bear the likeness of God's Son. And that leads one scholar to say these words, and I quote him, quote, the opinions of others that so trouble me some days and wrongly motivate me other days will no longer count. The opinions I hold of myself, sometimes high and sometimes low, each deceptive in its own way, will not matter. The pain of the relationships of this life, including those strained by neighbors, damaged by spouses, and even lost due to our own sin, will dissolve in the embrace of the one who is the fountain and reservoir of eternal love. Brothers and sisters, it will all be swallowed up in the victory achieved by Jesus Christ for us. And so I asked, does that vision of God's church enthrall you? We shall all be changed. We shall be like him. You see, that good news for God's church is central to human history. It is one, like Paul, that we must herald. It's one that we must proclaim. Truth number two. The church is central to the gospel. The gospel that some of us proclaim is far too individualistic. I mean, we say Christ died for me. We sing of heaven that will be glory for me. And wonderfully, both of those affirmations are true. The Son of God loved me. He gave himself for me. We must rejoice in that. And the gospel says that there is glory for every believer. Those are wonderful truths, but that's far from being the whole gospel as Paul preaches it here. You see, that's because what Paul emphasizes here as the whole gospel concerns both Christ and this mystery of Christ. And that mystery concerns not simply that Christ died and that he rose again to save a sinner like me, though he did. But Paul is also saying that he did so to create a new single humanity called the church. And so this central truth here that enthralls Paul 
is that Christ died not just to redeem us from sin, but to adopt us into Christ's family. And not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. Now, do you see how central the church is to the gospel? I mean, the church is to be this picture now of how the gospel creates a community of healing and love and hope for our world that is divided and fragmented and broken because of its sin and rebellion against God. Now, as I think of that, I I think of the interpersonal heat and friction that exists between individuals and races and cultures in this world. And as I do that, I think of Southern California where I once lived. Southern California is the most disaster-prone place I have ever lived. I mean, during the years that I lived in Southern California, wildfires consumed wide swaths of landscape, uh, mudslides pushed houses off cliffs into the Pacific, Santa Ana winds toppled semi-trailer trucks on the busy freeways out there. But far more unsettling for me than the winds and the fires and the mudslides were the earthquakes. Uh, You can run from a fire or a mudslide. Uh, You can take shelter from a wind, but you cannot run or hide from an earthquake. When the ground beneath you rocks and rolls, all you can do is just kind of ride it out. And as you probably know, earthquakes occur along fault lines. They occur along breaks in the ground where these great blocks of ground shift and and move in relation to other blocks of ground. I saw the United States Geological Survey map once that showed the fault lines in the San Bernardino Basin where we were living. How many fault lines? Four, five, six, maybe a dozen? The ground looked like a crushed eggshell. I couldn't begin to count all the fault lines. But you see, when you think about it, that map of the earthquake fault lines is a map of humanity in our world. I mean, just as there is heat and friction along earthquake fault lines, so there is interpersonal heat and friction and rumbling between individuals and races and genders and cultures in our world. And and Paul says Jesus Christ came into this world to heal that fragmentation by reconciling us to God as one new humanity. God has called the church to be a representation of that new humanity. It is to be a picture of what the gospel produces. Gratefully loved by God. Isn't that what the gospel makes of us? Doesn't it make of us people who are gratefully loved by God? People who are deeply grateful for the love they have by God. You know, and, and what is the gospel tells us? It's, it says that, that the Son of God existed eternally with God the Father in heaven, but it also says the Son did not grasp, he did not jealously guard his rights and privileges and prerogatives in heaven as we are prone to do. Instead, he willingly came down into our fallen, 
broken, fragmented world, although he was under no obligation to do so whatsoever, he made himself nothing, Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, in that he laid aside his celestial glory to clothe himself with our humble humanity. But that was only the beginning because our Lord humbled himself even further, didn't he? In obedience to the Father, this Son humbled himself to the point of dying naked and condemned as a criminal on a cross for our sins. I mean that any good man be, be willing to humble himself in this way for the blessing of others is breathtaking, but that the offended one, that the Lord of glory should be willing to enter into such humiliation in order to reconcile us to God and make of his, his children should enthrall us. Now, my friends, have we taken that good news into our hearts? And what does it make of us when we have? It makes us deeply grateful. Grateful to be loved by God. But there's something else as well. Gratefully loving toward others. Isn't that something else that the gospel makes of us? Isn't that the proper response of those who have taken the good news of the gospel into their hearts? Because the Son of God of all people freely put our interests above his own. Shouldn't we in turn put others' interests above our own too? The conductor of a symphony was asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? Second fiddle, he said. But isn't that what Christ, self-humbling for us, teaches us to do for, one, for others? One of my brothers was given by his new father-in-law at the wedding reception two little clay bears. The names of the two little clay bears were Bear and Forebear. They still have those little bears. They're kind of marked up and beat up now, but they still have them. But you see, bearing and forbearing in love is central to a marriage. It's central to a relationship and is central to the fellowship of the church. We have every reason to bear and forbear because Christ put our interests above his so that we, in turn, might put others' interests above ours. When the church does that, it's a picture of the gospel. And then finally, truth number three, the church is central to Christian living. Isn't it interesting that Paul concludes this section saying, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your Glory. Now, we know that Christ said that he would enter his glory only through suffering and that his followers must enter into their glory through suffering as well. But Paul's not saying that here. Paul's saying something different from that here. He's saying that his suffering will bring his readers glory. Paul is suffering in prison for them. He is suffering for their inclusion into God's church. And so convinced is Paul of God's grand vision for the church that he is prepared to pay any price that is necessary so that it might become a reality for these Ephesian readers. And you see, that is a measure, isn't it, of how central 
Paul considered the church to be for spiritual life. It is God's means of preparing us for glory. In Calvin's words, the church is the mother of the believer. The church was central to Christ's life, wasn't it? The church was absolutely and fundamentally central to Christ's life. We've said that already, but let's keep saying it. I mean, how significant is the church? It's so significant that God decreed its existence in eternity past. It's so significant that Christ left the glories of heaven for the darkness of this world to create his church by dying for his people's sins and then rising from the dead to give them new life. And the church must be central to our lives as well. If the church is central to God's purpose, if it was central to Christ's ministry, then surely it must be central to our lives as well. I mean, how can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we, you know, just push to the periphery of our lives what God has put at the absolute center? That's why we must give ourselves faithfully to the worship of the church and the fellowship of the church and the instruction of the church, and the service of the church, and the mission of the church, which is to herald the gospel so that the nations may enter in. And you see, it's in that way that we realize the purpose which God destined us to and Christ redeemed us for, bearing the glorious likeness of Christ. A man I read about was watching a full moon it was rising above a ridge of the Rockies one winter's night, and as it did, it was bathing the snowy landscape with glory. He heard a noise above him, and looking skyward, he saw at that point hundreds of geese flying overhead, just great V formations filling the sky. And in those formations that were closest to him, he was able to see the white underbelly of each bird against the nighttime sky. And the man marveled that God could make such ordinary creatures bear such glory. But it wasn't until years later that he realized he was able to see the underbellies of the geese because they had been reflecting the light off the snow, which had been reflecting the light off the moon, which had been reflecting the light and the glory of the sun on the other side of the earth. Both the creation and the creature reflected the glory of the sun. And you see, the day is coming when upon Christ's return, not only the church of God, but the creation itself will reflect the glory of God's kingdom. And all this is because God is at work according to his plan, conceived in eternity, revealed in history, which will climax at the end of history and then go beyond history into eternity future. And central to the accomplishment of God's eternal historical plan is Jesus Christ together with his redeemed and reconciled people, the church. The church is that central to life and history in this world. And Paul was enthralled with that vision. 
And if we are like him, then we shall constantly be seeking ways to make our church's worship fresh and our fellowship warm and our outreach compassionate. In other words, like Paul, we shall be ready to pray and serve and, if necessary, suffer to make God's vision of the church a reality in this world. Praise be to God for the grace he has shown to us in our Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are enthralled with Paul of this vision that you have for your church. Father, it's easy for us to carp and complain against the church because it is a work under construction. It's in continual need of reformation and renewal. But Father, we see how your church was according to a plan you conceived in eternity. We see how your church was created by your very Son coming into this world to give his life for the sins of his church and be raised to give it new life. Father, we see how central this church is, the body of Christ, to what you're accomplishing in this world. And we also see in Revelation that at the end of history, there will be a massive multitude which cannot be numbered, composed of people of every tribe and tongue and nation, all gathered together as a new race in Christ. Father, I would pray that even as Paul was willing to suffer for this plan of yours, that yes, we too might be willing to suffer, to pray, to work, to do our part in making your church what you have destined it to be. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.